Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. William Shakespeare died this week in 1616, and he was baptized this week in 1564. So this week is all about William Shakespeare, the bard. We've had him on the podcast many times. We haven't had him personally, but we've had people talking about his plays, his poetry, his flipping genius on this podcast many times. So it's difficult for us to select exactly who or what we should run with today. I'm going to bring one out of the archive in which I visit, because this reminds me of a time when we used to go out and do things, dig holes in the ground, look in them. Go for a pint afterwards. It was brill. This is a trip I took round Shakespeare's Shoreditch Theatre. As Shoreditch is rapidly becoming the most desirable and trendy area of London, a part of London in which team History Hit Towers is based. Yes, we're going up in the world. We now have office space and it's in Shoreditch. Anyway, as the builders have been in constructing giant new shiny buildings and apartments in Shoreditch, they have discovered a theatre that we think once hosted Shakespeare's merry band of players. I visited this 16th century playhouse where some of Shakespeare's works were first performed. Can you imagine being there in that audience and looked at the archaeology, looked at what the remains have to tell us with Heather Knight, senior archaeologist from Museum of London Archaeology. This was a huge treat. I hope you enjoy this episode. If you want to listen to more back episodes of this podcast, deep, deep back into the mists of time, You can do so only at historyhit.tv. It's our digital history channel. No adverts on the podcast. No adverts at all. You just listen to them all. You have a nice old time listening to the podcast without listening to my ridiculous adverts. And then you can also watch hundreds of hours of videos on there as well. All about history. Proper history for proper history fans. Please go and check that out. Historyhit.tv. But in the meantime, here's the very brilliant Heather Knight taking me around Shakespeare's Shoreditch Theatre. Right, Heather, we've entered, uh, we've come behind some wooden hoardings. We're, on, we're in a building site. We're in the heart of Shoreditch. Tell me, it's, there's some scaffolding. There's a big hole in the ground. There's lots of mud. There's an excavator. What are we doing here? <laughs> well, I'm doing the archaeology, and we're doing that before uh, a new building is built on the site. And this site's really important because it's the site of one of London's earliest playhouses, and that's called the Theatre. And is it connected with the Bard himself? 
Yes, it is. That's why people get very excited. But there's so many other people that are connected to it as well. Um, but yeah, it's Shakespeare performed here. Some of his early plays were performed here. Uh, Merchant of Venice, probably Romeo and Juliet. Now, how do we? I mean, how, how do, do you stumble across this? How do we know that, that that we're actually standing now on the remains of this remarkable Tudor playhouse? Well. These buildings were um, of interest to historians in the 19th century and they worked through you know, the historic documents that existed. So they looked at leases and that kind of thing and worked out that the theatre was probably in this kind of area of Shoreditch. And so we came to do an initial evaluation way back in 2008 to see if any of those remains existed. And did that involve looking under the ground? It did. We did some trial trenching and we had some remains that were the right shape, the right size, the right date for us to say we'd probably found the playhouse. And then we came back and did further excavation. And yes, we probably have about a fifth of its footprint on the site. And when it, when it was built, what, what did he call it? Well, he called it the theatre. And to us today, that doesn't sound very imaginative. But in 16th century London that was pretty much a new word. Most other buildings are named after place. The curtain, for instance, is named after curtain close, the field it's built in. So that's an interesting point. Why did Burbage choose that word? Um, Up until then, theatre had meant it had been used in the English language, but in the context of sort of blood and guts, like the theatre of war, for instance. So is he trying to reference um, the Colosseum, for instance? This is the first... Uh, polygonal structure that's built so is that what he's doing he's trying to make sort of London's version of the Colosseum because if you look at several engravings that sort of date from the 1570s which show the Colosseum called the Theatre of Rome so is that the kind of is that his thinking we don't know so, so um, we'll go and look at the archaeology in a sec, but while we're still here on the 21st century ground level, um, what, what are we seeing and what, what is sort of under us right now? Can you orient and take me around the site? Well, it's quite a small site. I think people are quite surprised when they, they, they come in and it's like, you know, it is, it is a tight space. It's only, what, 22 metres by 16 metres. Um, so at the moment, we're digging on the north side, so that's outside of the playhouse footprint. And we're into the buildings that existed before Burbage built the theatre. And that's the monastic remains of uh, John the Baptist Holywell. So this was a, um, a, a, a monastery? Well, it was home to a community of Augustinian nuns. Uh, it obviously uh, ran into a bit of trouble with Henry VIII in 1539. And at that point, the nuns were pensioned off. Uh, but some of the big buildings at that point were demolished but some of the smaller more useful buildings um, carried on functioning and those buildings included the bakehouse and the brew house and we've got evidence of those two buildings on the site so amazing so we've also found some some fantastic late medieval buildings that's exciting and then what so tell me how it comes to be a playhouse just to, to run me through the history after the dissolution by henry the eighth okay so we have dissolution of holywell in 1539 burbage takes up the lease on this small piece of land in the 1576 and builds a playhouse but to do that he has to actually demolish and remodel some of the buildings and we have evidence of Burbage's remodeling particularly of the bakehouse 
and why does he why does he want to build a playhouse what's the what's the what's the general what's the what's the trend that leading him to do that well he's quite interesting because he's sort of a, he's, he's an interesting mix he's sort of actor impresario he's a joiner so he's got this kind of he's got a good skill set he'd already tried um to do a, a venture of building a playhouse but that was the red lion out in stepney in sort of you know 15 67 ish but that didn't last very long so again it's one of those why here why why 1576 is one of those great great questions do you think the archaeology is going to help us solve that question or is that one for the the uh, the letters the sources the text from the time well that's the great thing about this kind of this um this period is because we can actually step over and use other resources we're not just looking at things buried in the ground and we can actually have sort of interdisciplinary conversations with people so it's you know talking to historians talking to other people saying you know how does all this fit together and i think the answers will come start to come together when we look at this building the theater in relation to its neighboring building the curtain which is just 200 meters down the road and, and why are this part of town what's interesting for those of you who don't know london don't know the uk that well shoreditch is now again the hip and happening part of London where people are going out to socialise and eat and watch stuff. Um, isn't it interesting that that seems to be what was happening here nearly 500 years ago? It's exactly it. It was the place people came for entertainment. You know, they escape that crowded city, they can come out, take a walk in the fields because Shoreditch at that point was fairly rural. They can sort of have a nice, nice afternoon out and it's the place to go to watch a play, a dance, comedy, whatever takes their fancy. And so this, he, these people are entrepreneurs when they're, when they're building these, these theatres. And, and OK, so talk to me. What, what, you've got a plan in your hands. What shape? What do we give, give people a sense of what it might have looked like? And also, tell me, how is the archaeology changing what we think it might have looked like? Well, although the theatre is referenced in quite a few legal documents, um, none of those documents reference actually what size or shape it was. And we know it was taken down in 1598 and part of the material, well, the materials were taken over to Bankside and they were used in the making of the globe. So for a long time, people thought that, well, these two buildings must be identical. So the globe over on Bankside, we have, you know, contemporary images of it. It's quite a large building, maybe 16, 17, 18 sided. But it wasn't until we actually came here, found the remains and realised they actually have more in common with the rows which is a much smaller building. So we're looking at a building that's 14-sided, 22 metres across. And so I think that's really kind of changed our understanding that this building wasn't maybe as big as people initially thought it would have been. Um, I, I, don't, I hesitate to use the phrase, but it feels like a sort of bare pit, a very concentrated space. Would it be quite high-banked seats and everyone sort of focusing on the space in the middle? I think it's quite an intense space. Yes, it would be quite an intimate space. So you have seating all around, you have stage on one side, um, people standing in front of the stage. So on a you know, packed afternoon, you know, it would be quite a, an intense experience, I think. Now, you are an archaeologist and you work for Museum of London Archaeology. Um, you're not a cultural historian, but just briefly, why did London in this period see this explosion of interest in theatre going? If I can answer that, <laughs> I need a new job now. Um, it's one of those really interesting moments in time. We've got a rise in the population in London, 
So, I mean, we've always had performance in London, you know, in the in-yards, people performing in the in-yards before, um, before the advent of the playhouses and all the way through. So it wasn't a particularly new thing. We didn't suddenly invent drama in 1576. So people were used to going out, used to being entertained, but suddenly you've got a rise in the population. So you've also got a rise maybe in the middle classes, so you've got more spending money. And you've got land to build these buildings on. So with the dissolution, you get all this land that's freed up around in the suburbs. So people can, like Burbage, can go and build large new structures, these purpose-built buildings, rather than repurposing, uh, um, say, an in-yard. We meant to mention the big guy. We need to mention Shakespeare. I know you're always talking about everyone else here, but I knowing my producer, he will put Shakespeare in the title of this podcast. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Nat. Um, and so uh, do, do we know how his association with this site began or, or how, how did he like being here? Do we know anything about his relationship with this place? Well, Shakespeare's obviously, you know, early career is, is one of those things that's kind of missing, missing, in, missing in history. But I think it's really important to kind of understand that he didn't invent this. He arrived in London and this was uh, a kind of a tradition that he kind of was engaged with, but very established. Here in Shoreditch we have the theatre and the curtain. He worked in both. He was living here. He became part of that community that was established, you know, sort of based around Hollywell Lane, really. You're listening to Dan Snow's History Hit. Heather Knight is taking him around a Shoreditch theatre that may have been the set, literally, for some of Shakespeare's plays. More after this. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of these great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. 
Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Unusually on an archaeological site, I've been here about 48 seconds and haven't been thrown into a muddy hole, so... <laughs> Should we go and do that then? Yeah, lead the way. <laughs> okay, what, was, what, are, what are we seeing here? Well, we're looking um, on the north side of the site and running down the edge of the trench, on the, towards the northern edge of the trench, is quite a substantial chalk and ragstone wall. And initially we thought that was an external wall to the bakehouse. But when we came back in the summer, we actually found ovens to the south of it. So we realised actually it's an internal wall. And at the far end of the trench, you can see a sort of big uh, round masonry structure, which is the base of a bread oven. So that's just one of our ovens that we found on the site. It's an extraordinary condition. There's a wonderful big round stone in the middle. Now, it's all black. Is, is that me being naive or is that the effect of the, um, the charring, the, the heat over the years? That's exactly what it is. And we get big sort of black stripy layers, which is charcoal that they've raked out from the fire. Wonderful. It's very well constructed because you could, you could have a fire in there today, couldn't you? It is rather nice and rather fun of it. It's, um, the round stone that you refer to in the middle is actually a reused millstone. So they've kind of repurposed uh, materials that they've, they find, you know, lying around. And now we are looking at buildings that were here before Burbage, Shakespeare and others used this theatre. Well, what, what, what period do you think these monastic buildings date to? Well, the ones we're looking at now probably aren't the earliest uh, phase of the monastic buildings. Uh, currently we're thinking they're sort of 14th, 15th century, but they carry on in use all the way through and they aren't actually demolished until around 1600 so these buildings are repurposed and reused by Burbage in the late 16th century. So theatre goers here to watch Romeo and Juliet and all the other wonderful plays would have been eating pasties and buns and cakes produced in that oven? Well we're not certain it actually carried on having the same function okay because we know from the demolition deposits within that particular oven that we're looking at that it probably went out of use in around the mid 16th century. So how they're using this building, again, is one of those big research questions that we're going to be uh, trying to answer. Right, there's a ladder there. It's about six foot below the uh, modern ground level. Why don't you lead the way and I'll follow you? <laughs> so, all right, we're down in the pit now. Like all archaeologists, you've come alive. The minute we get in the pit, you guys, the, the ears go back, the eyes brighten. We've got lots of um, archaeology here working with their trousers. You may be able to hear the scraping. Um, we're standing next to the remarkable oven with its big, lovely millstone in the middle. Uh, so then we 
We've got a gentleman here working at th- th- this wall, which might be the external wall. No, well, we. This is um, Alex has done a really good job of cleaning it up at the minute. It's the internal wall. We originally thought it was an external wall, but as you see, it's quite substantial. But we have ovens on both sides of it. Um, the wall at the west end of the trench might be the end wall of the building. Again, you can see it's made of chalk. These walls are sort of chalk, ragstone with lime mortar. So this was part of the theatre complex. We're not sure how it was used. No, that's one of the great questions. We can see there is uh, remodelling of these buildings, this particular the bakehouse. It beca- it, they shorten it and they narrow it to allow for the construction of that big 14-sided, 22-metre-across-three-storey theatre space. But how they're actually used, are they, um, are they private spaces? Are they spaces for the audience as well? You know, how, how does this work with its external space, for instance? These are really big questions that the archaeology is posing. Could be a dressing room. It could be. <laughs> oh, I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to get excited about the actors all being here. So we got. Okay, so now we're turning around. We're facing south. We've put our backs to that external wall, that, that interior wall, the big chunky one, and the backs to the bread oven. Now the the, the theatre's walls or foundations are a, a meter into this into this protective uh, behind this concrete um, thing that you've just put in. Um, yeah, there's uh, the you've got the concrete ground beam which um, forms the top where the basement space will be in the new building um, and the theatre stood about a metre, two metres further south so we know it was quite close it's almost touching the remodelled bakehouse and again the front of the building comes round and it almost touches the remodelled brew house because Burbage also you know, was using the brew house that went along the, the street front So if we'd been standing right here in the 1570s and early 80s there would have been a tower, a, a metre, oh, I'd almost be touching it now, um, three storeys high, the, the external wall of this theatre. Yeah, we have contemporary accounts that says they were, you know, generally three storeys, one above the other. Uh, if we look at um, other, you know, um, say the Rose or the, or the Globe or the Hope, they all seem to follow that model of being three storeys high. It would appear... Um, almost circular because it has 14 sided so it's sort of an angled building but not very sharp angles we don't know the material uh, we were sorry we don't know the kind of the the color say of the outside of the building but we do know it had a tiled roof so we found lots of tiles within the demolition deposits associated with the theater so we, we, we know it has a tiled roof we're not sure, you know, what, what, the, what the paint scheme was, for instance, on the outside. I imagine it would be quite, quite bright and vibrant because you know, Burbage wants to attract people to his new playhouse. And I hesitate to mention its famous cousin across the river, but should, when people look at the modern reconstruction of the Globe Theatre, is that kind of useful or do you think it's in, in, unhelpful? It was very useful. I mean, particularly in how do you build a building like like that um it's much bigger than the theater would have been obviously the modern globe has a thatch roof whereas this has a tiled roof um but essentially it it does the same thing you've got um galleries with seating around an open yard the open yard is in front of the stage imagine imagine the theater is a sort of a smaller version of the modern globe so we've come back up here into the porter cabin now where it's nice and warm and we're going to talk about the future. But before 
us about the future. I want, I want to know about the, the story about how the theatre stopped being here, because it's quite dramatic, isn't it? Well, yes, tradition says that it was stolen away one kind of winter's night in sort of Christmas 1598. Oh, wait a second. How do you steal a theatre? I'm, I'm intrigued because this is a, <laughs> a three-storey building. It's 22 metres across. It would have been made by that point, you know, it was made out of oak, by which point, you know, it would have been quite dry and seasoned and all the joints would have tightened up. I'm not sure how you can take a building like that down even now in one day, let alone at the end of the 16th century. So it possibly was done over Christmas period when everybody's away, sort of um, when the landlord Giles Allen is away. And Shakespeare and his mates just dismantled it and nicked it. Um, well, they, I think what they might have done is actually just taken the usable material from it because material is expensive. They were trying to build their new building, the Globe, over on Bankside. So to actually take it apart and repurpose some of the you know, expensive materials in it actually made sense. And, and that was and that was the end of I, whatever the the truth of this sort of amazing story. That was the end of of drama on this site, was it? It was the end of drama on this site. It wasn't the end of drama in Shoreditch because its neighbouring um, counterpart, the Curtain, carries on as a playhouse through into the sixteen twenties. But for the theatre, it was the end of its life. And then it was built over, and various things have happened until you guys have have brought it to light again. Um, what is the plan here? Because you've got quite an innovative... Um, it's not just... There's going to be... It's a, it's a building project. There's going to be a proper commercial building on top of us. But it, this is not going to be buried underneath lots of steel and cement, is it? No, it's not. It's sort of, you know, now it's come to light. It's going to stay in the light. Um, it's... The ground floor space will be an exhibition space. The shape of the building will be referenced within the materials they're using within the floor. There's going to be um, a viewing panel within the floor so you can actually look down at the physical remains of the building. And there'll be an exhibition space next to those remains where objects from the site, complemented by loaned objects, will real, you know, really tell the story of Shakespeare and Shoreditch and those beginnings of early drama in London. You're going you're gonna to be able to see the outlines of the foundations of this theatre. So it's going to be quite an exciting exhibition in terms of what you're going to have to do to interpret and, and bring these objects and, and ideas to life? Well, yes, because it's, it's quite nice because the space has been um, designed so we can have quite an, uh, quite an immersive experience using AV to really kind of feel like you're back in that space in 16th century Shoreditch. Nice, I can't wait to come see it. When can we expect that to be added to the already packed list of things that you have to go and do if you come as a, a tourist who loves history to London? Well, hopefully by this time next year, we won't be sitting up here in the porter cabin. We'll be downstairs in a lovely, beautiful exhibition space. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on site and uh, good luck with the rest of the excavation. Well, thank you. I feel we have the history on our shoulders. Oh, of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Hi everyone, thanks for reaching the end of this podcast. Most of you are probably asleep, so I'm talking to your snoring forms, but anyone who's awake, it would be great if you could do me a quick favour, head over to wherever you get your podcasts and rate it five stars and then leave a nice glowing review. It makes a huge difference for some reason to how these podcasts do. Madness, I know, but them's the rules. Then we go further up the charts, more people listen to us, 
and everything will be awesome. So thank you so much. Now sleep well. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.